tricky business figuring out what you're going to say for the last time. Uh, but as God has done many times, He just reminds me that it's not my business to speak anyway. It's His business to speak. Um, so we finished up John's Gospel last week, which left this week. Uh, and the Lord kept bringing to mind uh, Joshua. And it's not so much, in Scripture we see, it's not so much the person. It's, it's really never the person in the Bible. It's what God's doing in and through or maybe to that person. The story's never about, ultimately, uh, the overarching narrative is never about a person. The overarching narrative is always about God. Anywhere you go in the Bible, from Leviticus, Numbers, you could go through the prophets and end up in the New Testament, the Gospels, and even the book of Revelation. It's never about a person per se. They're merely a vehicle to telling God's story. So Joshua has a story. Joshua has many stories, many stories that are God's stories. And we're going to read three different accounts here in the early part of Joshua. But I've entitled today's message, Strong and Courageous. It is a, a phrase that shows up a lot in the Bible. Maybe you've never thought about it. But it's kind of a command of God's, uh, per se, to all of us over and over again. You can find it not just in Joshua, but many different places. But Joshua is one of those books of the Bible where it shows up and seems to resonate the most. And here's why. Who is Joshua? What's going on? What's the backstory? Uh, Moses, who was God's handpicked deliverer to bring the people of Israel out of captivity, out of slavery underneath the Egyptians for generations here now. Moses has been the leader of those people. They come through a time of, uh, after leaving the Egyptians, and they go through a time of disobedience. A whole generation goes by where they wander in the wilderness. And they're now at the point where they're getting ready to enter into the land that God had promised them. But it's also the time for Moses to die. You may or may not know this. Moses never made it into the promised land. God gave him a uh, 30,000 foot view of the promised land, but Moses never made it to the promised land. But what Moses did find out within short order after, within an instant of dying, Moses found out what the promised land really is. Uh, but that the Israelites were waiting to inherit this land of Canaan, this land that's flowing with milk and honey. But now with Moses dying, it's a time of transition. It's a time of uh, God moving one man aside and raising up another man. But the story is not about the man. The story is about God. So... Moses dies, and the leadership of the Israelites is now being transferred to Joshua. Joshua, his account, I mean, he's a, he was born in slavery in Egypt. He suffered at the hands of the same taskmasters that everybody else in Egypt did. But later, God would raise up or stir up in Joshua a, 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 not just a position, but a, a, a calling, a, a power um, that was evident when even when the uh, Israelites were fighting the Amalekites on their way out and through the wandering through the wilderness. And uh, Moses is there, and you may remember the account. Moses is standing on the mountaintop, and every time Moses raised up his arms, uh, the Israelites would begin to win in the valley. 
and there was Aaron and Hur that would hold up Moses' arms, but there was a man that was leading the battle on the ground. That man was Joshua. So we know he's a warrior. We know he was Moses' aide, kind of like one of Moses' right-hand men. He was with Moses when Moses received the law on the mountain. He was one of the twelve spies in Numbers chapter 12 that went into Canaan. And you remember, the spies came out and everybody, all the spies were like, whoa, the grapes are big, but the people are big. The odds are against us. So we, we better not take the land right now because we're going to fail. And there were two men that came back from that escapade and said, no, 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 this fight is the Lord's. We can do this. We just need to be faithful and go. Those two men, Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua. And of the Israelites that were there at that time, only two of them would see the promised land. A whole generation would die off in the wilderness, but there were just two that would see the promised land, Caleb and Joshua. So we know that they were rewarded for their faithfulness, their belief in who God was. And he was commissioned as Moses' Moses's successor even before Moses died in Deuteronomy 31. Now, the time of transition occurs. And the Lord has a word for Joshua. And that's the first thing we want to read this morning. Joshua chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the land of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause the people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do you get the sense that God is trying to drive home a point to Joshua before the time of transition or in the midst of this time of transition? And the message is clear. The message is this. Be strong and courageous. The fight is not yours. Be strong and courageous. I go with you. So I asked three questions this morning. Or one question with three answers. Where does strength and courage come from with regard to Joshua and with regard to Living Legacy Church and with regard to every believer who's going to choose to follow the Lord, Christ Jesus. 
Where does that strength and courage come from and what does it look like? Well, here in the first few verses of Joshua chapter 1, it's clear. We see that your strength and your courage is found in the very Word of God. Everything that we do here, we have done uh, since the beginning of this church, has built on the Word of God. It begins and it ends with the truth of Scripture. It begins and it ends with whatever God tells us to do according to His Word. If it's unpopular with the culture, we do it anyway. If it's difficult or challenging or it proves like sandpaper in our lives, we do it anyway. If it is uh, taking us into a place of the unknown, into a place that calls us into sheer 100% faith and trusting in Him, we go and we do it. Because the Word of God is the foundation for everything that we do. Cover to cover, I'm joyous and happy to say again for the millionth time since I've been pastor of this church, that from cover to cover, the Word of God is true and without error. It's inspired by Him. It's His very Word. We say that there's 66 books in the Bible with multiple authors. That's, that's not really true. There are 66 books in the Bible. There are multiple people who wrote those words down. But the, there is one author of Scripture, and that is God. This is His story. Everything that we, should, that we do should start with this. And it should end with this. How blessed are we that we have the Word of God in our hands, that we can read it, that I can wake up every day and go to the Word of God and say, God, what would you have me to do? What do you have to say to me today? So after telling Joshua to be strong and courageous, he says to him again, he says, be strong and very courageous. I love that. If strong and courageous wasn't enough, apparently there's a whole nother level that God wants Joshua to go to. He says, hey you who's stepping out into the unknown, hey you that's going to be given the largest task to date, I want you to be strong and very courageous. Because sometimes... We need the extra nudge, don't we? We need to not just be courageous. We need someone to say to us, be very courageous. Throw caution to the wind. Just trust God with everything. But he says here that we're to be a person that follows the Word. He says, in verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that the Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to it from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Um, a little movement to the right, and this is a word of caution for all of us, a little movement to the right or a little movement to the left of God's Word doesn't always seem like a big deal at the time, does it? You know, we can compromise, and it's just a, it's just a little white lie, or it's just a, a little sliver of indifference from what God says in His Word. And that's where the danger really starts. The slightest movement, either way, can cause you to miss the mark altogether. Here's how it works. One degree of difference. If I start out, I'm heading out the door. And one, I'm off by one degree when I start out. I'll probably still hit the door. 
one degree off, and let's say I need to catch a flight at Philly International Airport. I'm one degree off when I leave this building. You know where I end up? Somewhere near Independence Hall. I miss my flight. Now, okay, so you're still in the vicinity. I mean, you're still in the city of Philadelphia for the most part. One degree off, and let's say I need to get to Los Angeles. One degree off, and you end up in San Clemente, California. Uh, and if you flew, and that's 60 miles, you missed your mark by 60 miles, just starting off one degree difference if you went across the country. If you flew around the equator and you started off just one degree off, you would miss your mark by 500 miles. You say, well, you're talking miles. We're talking Scripture. What, what are you getting at? Listen to me. If you begin that road, that slippery slope, and you just vary by one degree to the right or to the left, which the children of Israel would find out in short order, you just move off one degree or the other, by the time you get to the end of your life, it's not going to look like what God's best was for you. And you can do a lot of damage along the way in your life and in the lives of a lot of people. At the time, it may seem difficult and inconvenient to stick to the narrative of Scripture that seems sometimes just so confining and so um, you know, restrictive, and yet we, we say, here's a good example. I'm leaving so I can offend you all today. The Bible's very clear that women are not to be pastors. All right? And you say to yourself, well, what does it matter? You know, we live in a, a we have, we have um, progressed as a culture. We are more civilized now. Uh, and certainly feminism has ushered in a lot of great things, one of which is that women and little girls should be able to grow up to do whatever they want to do. And uh, that should mean everything that men can do. And, um, so we could choose to disobey Scripture in that regard, which a majority of denominations have chosen to do. And what you begin to see is this. Here's where you miss the mark. All of a sudden, you wake up one day, and you have totally, by just choosing to do that, so God makes clear in His Word that men are to be the spiritual leaders of the house. All right. So what you've now done is you've negated that truth because you've chosen for women to be the spiritual leaders of God's house. So you've rendered the role of man as spiritual leader of a home. And then one day, about uh, 500 miles down the road in your life as a church, you find out that the men in your church no longer want to be a part. And your numbers begin to dwindle. Because you know why? God created men in His image. When He created men in His image, He created them to be spiritual leaders. When you put a spiritual leader of the female persuasion over a man, you know what men do? They check out. And all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, why are women doing everything in our church? Why, is, why are women the only people that show up? Why do we not have any male leadership? Because you just deviated, maybe by only a degree or two, but you just neutered God's plan for everything that He has written in His Word. And on and on and on the list goes in Scripture. But one degree to the right or to the left can make a huge difference. Be attentive, church. You want to be strong. You want to be courageous. Start with God's Word and be attentive even to the small truths of Scripture. They're not going to play out well in the politically correct culture. They're not always going to sound right to your friends. 
but it's God's Word. We can't rewrite it. We're not God. We can't rewrite it and make it say what we want it to say. So he's telling Joshua, look, you've got a big task in front of you. Start with my Word and finish with my Word. Always. He says to meditate on it day and night. What does that mean? It just means that not only are you are people that follow the Word, but that we're people who ingest the Word. We have to ingest it, we have to read it, and we have to process it. We have to make it our own. Um, meditating on something means to actually read it, study it, contemplate it, think about it to the point where you can apply it, to the point where it's actually changing you and making a difference in your life. God tells Joshua to meditate on it. You can't know it and you can't obey it unless you're meditating on it. And there's a difference. I mean, I know a lot of people that can quote a lot of Bible. They're all over the internet. But they're not meditating on the Word, and the reason I can tell you that is because they're not living it. They haven't ingested it. Um, this church needs to start more small groups. This church needs to do more one-on-one discipleship. Men showing other men how to study the Bible. Women getting together for Bible studies and accountability over coffee and talking about what the Word of God is and how it can apply to their life. That's when real change is going to happen. That's when effective growth is going to take place. Not just wider, but deeper. And be a person that lives out the Word. God makes a couple promises to Joshua. He says, if you don't deviate to the right, you don't deviate to the left, if you meditate upon this, and he says these words, he says, you'll be prosperous and you'll be successful in all that you do. You want to see success in your life? You want to see what real prosperity looks like? Not Joel Osteen prosperity, not Benny Hinn prosperity, not Joyce Meyer prosperity, but the kind of prosperity that really, really, really matters to God. The kind that when you get to the end of your life, you look back and you say, I may not have gotten rich on that, I may not have gained in any tangible way, but the kingdom of God is different because I was obedient to the word of God, because I lived it out. That's what prosperity will look like. In James 1, 22-25, James says this, and this, this is what it means. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There it is. Meditate on the word, do the word, and be blessed and prosperous as a result. And again, I'm not saying that prosperity looks like a new Mercedes. I'm not saying that prosperity is going to look like what prosperity may look like at the mega church down the street. I'm just saying prosperity is going to look like what God wants it to look like in this church and in your family and in your life if you're doers of the word. I, just, I love the word of God. and I could just go on and on 
about how special it is to me. But the future for this church and every church full of God's people begins and ends with His Word. Personally, privately, and corporately. I pray that the next man that you call is better looking than me, and I pray that he's a better articulator and he's more passionate about Scripture than I am. I really do. It starts with leadership. God told Joshua this. You, Joshua, you're leading my people. You must be in the Word. Don't deviate on it. Don't move to the right or the left. Meditate on it. It starts with you. You want to be strong and courageous? Go to my Word. You're calling a pastor when you're vetting teachers in this church. Make sure they're people who hold fast to the Word of God as without error. Men who see the Word of God as infallible, inspired by God. This is the qualification of a pastor in Titus 1.9. One of the many qualifications of a pastor. Paul told his protege Titus when he was setting up churches and leadership, he said, as with regard to pastors, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The people who lead in the churches, the people who lead God's movement need to be people who are overly familiar with the Word of God. So passionate about it that it is who they are. And then he says to 2 Timothy these words, with regard to pastors in 2 Timothy 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to who? Faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You want to you wanna raise up the next generation. You want to call the next a generation of leaders and pastors, they need to be faithful men who are able then to teach the Word of God effectively to other people. It's, it's a common theme of Scripture. The, the, the man needs to be a leader who is in love with this thing, passionate about it, and ready to share it with everybody who will give him an ear. And maybe even if they don't give him an ear, he's ready to share it with them. Now, your strength and courage, we started out by saying, is found in the very Word of God. But he, he tells Joshua some other things here too. We're going to read in just a second a story that's going to illustrate this second truth. Your strength and courage, point two, is found in the work of God. Strength and courage is found in the work of God. Remember that God promised Joshua in chapter 1 that he would be with him. Well, that's an understatement. Uh, Joshua, uh, God would not only be with Joshua, God would be Joshua's and the children of Israel's everything. And here's an example. Let's read what that looks like in Joshua chapter 3. A little bit later, they are... Uh, poised to take the promised land. And this is what happens. 
So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout this time of the harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Araba, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Here's the question. Why the priests and the Ark of the Covenant first? I love the little detail that God gives us. It's, such, it's so telling and just so poignant. He says, the priests were carrying the Ark, and those who were going before, they, they barely got their toe dipped in the water, barely touched the brink of the water, and all of a sudden the water just stopped piled up in a heap way upstream at this random town that we probably couldn't find today called Adam. And there it was, very reminiscent. It's, 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 it's kind of like a, a, a shadowing of the Red Sea. And they're crossing over the Jordan now. And it was the Ark of the Covenant. It was the Word of God. God Himself manifested there that was the first to go before the Israelites crossed over. It was God who had to go first in order to do the work. God goes before us in our work, in our agenda, in our blessings. It would be God that would stop up the water so they could receive the blessing of the promised land. And just again to reiterate this, there is not an obstacle for you in your life. There is not an obstacle that is too big for God to take care of. If God has a work in store for you, if God wants to take you someplace, it doesn't matter if the obstacle is, God told us this for a reason, mind you. This just isn't nonsense that gets thrown in there. The Jordan River was not just flowing normally. It was at flood stage. Any of you may have been out and about yesterday afternoon when the skies opened up and all heaven poured down in the form of rain on the earth. I was driving down State Street in Harrisburg, dropping some things off at another church, and uh, these guys and these the flash floods came and there was about eight inches of water at Progress Avenue and um, 22. And these little guys and these little souped up uh, Toyota Corollas, you know, from downtown Harrisburg, the kind that rise about that high off the ground, decided that they were so cool they could drive through it. And it was hilarious to me watch them just one by one, like nosedive in and the water come pouring up over the hoods. And it was ridiculous to watch. Um, but my mind, I was thinking about this because I was thinking about how the flood stage doesn't mean just that the water was deep. You all have seen like 
in the spring thaw after the ice has been on the Susquehanna River all winter long and then the heavy rains come in the spring and the ice begins to thaw, what that flood stage looks like, how fast the water is flowing. Remember how the ice years ago took out the Market Street Bridge, just took it out completely, bridge, gone, downstream somewhere in Wrightsville or something. And and this is what they're faced. They're staring at a river like this. And and uh, in the back of Joshua's mind, he's going to be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. And God, to assure him, goes first. And they barely touch that water and just all of a sudden, whoosh, like a dam upstream, it just stopped. And not that it just stopped, but then they went out there and they stood in the middle of the water. The ark is there on the shoulders of the priest. God's presence there. The ark of the covenant and the, the million plus crossing over the Jordan River into the promised land. And God gives us another word of detail. Not only was it in flood stage, but now he tells us that they stood there on dry ground. Have you ever gone in, and I've done some cleanup work and stuff after floods and hurricanes, and after there have been, there's been ponding of water or flash flooding. Do you know what the ground is like after you? It's like... You need to wear, uh, Rachel, you'd appreciate this. You need to put on your muck boots, right? And you need to go out with your L.L. Bean muck boots on and you need to just start because the mud is coming up to here. And yet it says that God even dried the ground so the people of Israel could cross. What does this mean for us today? Look, there's got to be a practical application here. Here's the point. God goes before us. If God goes before us, He can certainly take care of the obstacles He can certainly take care of all the small details. I bet the last thing on their mind was, how muddy is the ground going to be when we cross over? But yet God even took care of those little tiniest of details. There's no obstacle too big for Him. There'll be many times in your life, and my life, when you feel called to obey God at flood stage. And it's going to seem like the tempest is swirling, and there's no way to get from point A to point B. It's going to look murky and deep and intimidating and angry. And God's saying, be strong and courageous and go. Because I go before you. And don't expect to settle for ankle deep wetness. Anticipate a full on provision and goodness from God. This is a, a This is a great work of faith that's going on here. Later, the the faith of the priests to simply walk up to that water and begin to put their feet in it at flood stage tells us a lot as well. And sometimes that's going to be you and I. We're a holy priesthood. We carry the presence of God wherever we go. Sometimes you have to walk up to flood stage, rushing waters, and you're going to have to put your foot in. You're going to have to pull a Peter and step out of the boat, knowing that the Lord is with you. Later, God would do it again. He would stop the Jordan again for another couple guys of faith named Elijah and Elisha in 2 Kings 2. Let me read you their story quickly because I want to just drive home a different point from their Jordan experience. It says, then Elijah said to him, so Elijah's a prophet of God. Elisha is 
his uh, disciple, wannabe, next prophet of God. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, being Elisha, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak, and he rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on what? Dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And I love Elisha's response. Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. You know what a crazy response. But Elisha is watching firsthand the power of faith, the working out of the Spirit of God on Elijah's life. And he's looking at his life and he's saying, no, I don't want to just cross the Jordan on dry ground. I want twice what he has. Please, Lord, give me twice the faith, twice the manifested power to do what he's done. It's my prayer for you going forward in your life, that God would grant you a double portion of faith even beyond what you have now. That everywhere you go, you would set your feet on dry ground. That there would be not one obstacle to this church, to this body, to your family, to you individually, that you don't feel like in faith you can conquer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That that when I set out from this place and I go do my own work of faith in the next season of my life, you see your future as a new season to do a new work of faith as well. And you say to God, look, our greatest prayer right now, Lord, is we want double what we have had up to this point. Don't settle, but press on the accelerator and say, I want more. I want to see the Jordan dry up. I want to see every lost person in Dolphin County fall to their knees. I want to be a part of that. I want to see revival. I want to see an awakening take place in this community. I want to see a double portion of your spirit fall on this place that will make the Asbury Revival in New York look like a small circus fair compared to what's going on here. I want it. I want it. I want it. Don't just mutter through. I want a double portion. Now, we're going to skip ahead two chapters in Joshua to get to the third point. Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We read this. Man, this is just so telling. They cross over the Jordan River. And we read that as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the land had dried up the waters, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel 
at Gebeath, Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Here's the third point. Your strength and your courage is found in your obedience. We must be an obedient people. It's It's, it's the faith that catches our attention to be able to step into the Jordan, see the waters part, to inherit the promised land. But you know what? Once they get into the promised land, the very first thing they do is obey. Obey. Once they crossed the Jordan, they were in the land that God promised them. But here's the deal. It was also enemy territory. Enemy territory. They didn't know it, but even at the time, word was spreading and God was causing the hearts of their enemies to melt because of the power that God was demonstrating through the Israelites. But they knew that they needed to obey even to the tiniest detail as God would require them. So, um, God had given the sign of circumcision, the command of circumcision to Abram. And it carried through, and then Moses. And now a generation goes by that was wandering in the wilderness. Everybody who had been circumcised, they had died. Uh, And circumcision was the outward uh, symbol of belonging to God. You were a God-fearer. You belonged to the Almighty Uh, you were a child of His, that was your outward symbol, was circumcision. Now, as a man, I probably would have chosen a bunch of other ways to have an outward sign, but that's what they went with, okay? So, and and we still see the the, the ramifications of that even today. Um, But a generation had come along that was going to inherit the Promised Land, but they had not been circumcised. There was no outward identification that they belonged to God. They were going to, in a physical sense, look just like the people that they were going to uh, wander into their territory. Now here's the thing. I never thought about it this this way before, but when I was in Israel last year, um, and we were in this spot where the, uh, roughly the Jordan, where the Israelites would have had to cross over, or they would have crossed over, um, and they come to the plain there, uh, right south of uh, and east of Jericho, and then as you begin uh, to cut, you come off the Jordan River. You begin a, a gradual ascent, and you come to Jericho, and then your ascent becomes even steeper, and then eventually you arrive at Jerusalem, which is the city on a hill, literally. Uh, and so they would have been in this plain area just outside of Jericho, in the heart of enemy territory now. And they would have chosen to obey God by circumcising themselves. Now, when you circumcise yourself, there's a recovery period that's involved in this. First of all, someone has to take the flint knives and do the job. 
But then there's a recovery period, and Scripture tells us that as well. When you're a grown man, there's a recovery period. So now you are out there in the open, and you know what you've chosen to do. You've chosen to obey God despite the potential obstacles that are going to come your way. At any given moment, out of those hills could have come and come their enemies, could have overrun those men, those fighting men, at any time while they were recovering from their injuries. And yet they chose to obey God anyway. Obedience is always the most important thing. There is no consideration for what the um, challenges might be outside of obedience. First, obey and trust God with the fallout. Okay, Because we read that God was already moving in the hearts of the enemies. He was melting their hearts already. They didn't have to worry about that. All they had to do was worry about being circumcised. It meant exposing themselves in the backyard of their new enemies. It meant slowing down to heal rather than maybe keeping their own timing. After you cross the Jordan River, man, they, they probably were like, we can do anything. They were probably ready to just take the land. But they had to obey. And they had to heal. We know that obedience is the most important thing to God. We read it in 1 Samuel 15. King Saul just got done disobeying God. And he had all kinds of excuses as to why he did it. And the Israelites could have done that too. They could have gotten to the promised land and they could have said to themselves, well, we'll do the circumcision thing later. The most important thing right now is to get into battle. So in verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15, the prophet Samuel replied to King Saul, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to His voice. Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than offering the fat of rams. In a very real sense, God is saying that obedience in your life is more important than trying to worship Him. He would rather see you obey first and then come and worship. There is... Very limited worship occurring when we remain in defiant disobedience to God. We don't identify with God in obedience through circumcision anymore, really. Um, we're not Jews. We're born-again believers in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit does the circumcising now. The Holy Spirit, Scripture tells us, circumcises our hearts. It's a change that takes place within our heart that now identifies us with the living God. Our outward identification is done a different way. There's a Bible study that asks you all this question, but the the outward identification of who we belong to is no longer circumcision. The outward identification of who we belong to is baptism. We go into the water to proclaim to the church, but more importantly to proclaim to the lost world that we have been dead and buried with Jesus Christ, and as a result we have been raised 
to the newness of life. The waters of believer's baptism is our circumcision. It is our identification with our enemies, with the lost world, and with the world entirely that we belong to Christ. That's why it's important to teach every new believer in Christ that they need to be baptized. Immediately, in their new walk with Christ, one of the first lessons that they're learning is to obey. God calls us to be baptized as an outward identification of who we belong to. God says, obey me in this. We need to teach new believers to do this. And again, I'm leaving, so if I offend you, I'm sorry. But um, this is why it's important, I think, that if children profess, if your child, let's say your seven-year-old, says, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to pray with me, Mom or Dad. I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And you as a parent believe that they were saved at that moment. It's important that you allow them to be baptized. Because you run the risk. If, if there's some other magical word that you want to hear or some other outward manifestation of... of um, trusting in Christ that you're looking for, and you're going to wait and wait and wait on that, you run the risk of teaching your children or maybe just a a new child in Christ, somebody else that you led to the Lord as an adult. Teaching them that um, obeying God is optional or can be pushed off. Believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. If you believe they've been saved and they're ready and they believe they've been saved, then they're ready to be baptized. Here's the deal as we close. As far as obedience goes, many things consume our heart. They worry us. They cause that. Lord knows I'm going through it right now. I'm having panic attacks every day. As I just crawled into my air mattress last night, and I said to my wife, what are we doing? We're crazy. Um, But here's the deal. If you're worried that there won't be enough time to obey, obey anyway. If you're worried that there won't be enough money or that there won't be enough resources, obey anyway. If you're worried that there won't be um, enough friendly faces or maybe that you're going to offend somebody, Obey anyway. If you're worried that your words um, are not going to ring true or appropriately with the culture that we live in, obey anyway. God honors obedience to Himself. God honors obedience to His Word. We know that because God was already melting the hearts the kings and the rulers and the leaders, they were already scared of God and they were already scared of the Israelites. Um, And I have to think that for this church, for you. I have to think that for myself. That the Lord is going before me. The Lord has prepared the way of battle. The Lord has empowered me with the strength and courage that I need. The Lord has given me His Word as fuel for what I need to do. The the Lord is going before me. The Lord is resourcing me. The Lord is already preparing a path for you and for me to do what we need to do next. We just need to stick our toe in the Jordan. And go. And go in obedience. 